This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions, recorded live in the city of Melbourne. Today's big question, is the death of Christianity in Australia a good thing? We're asking this question today to Al Stewart. Al works with City Bible Forum in Sydney and is a former Anglican bishop and author, and he regularly speaks at conferences in Australia and around the world. His Twitter account is at Baldy Pastor, and he joins me now. Please welcome Al Stewart. Thank you, Rob. Right, well, to kick off bigger questions, we like to ask a couple of smaller questions. We do try to have a bit of fun on the show. Today, we're asking Al Stewart about the death or decline of Christianity in Australia. So, Al, I thought we'd test you on how much you know about Christianity in Australia. Now, do you feel qualified at all? Uh, Former bishop, perhaps? Having listened to uh, bigger questions before, I know what's coming. I don't feel qualified. (laughs) Okay, right. Well, we'll see how we go. We do try to help you to pass. Okay. Uh, There's two questions, both multiple choice. In question one. In 1901, according to the census, what percentage of Australians considered themselves Christian? Was it A, 100%, everyone was Christian? Was it B, 96%, just about everyone? There are a few with other religions. Is it C, 52%, about half the population? Or was it D, 4%, someone forgot to enter the details of that particular question into the census results? I'll go for B. You go for B. That's a good one to go with because that's the right answer. Okay. Well done, Al. Now, yeah, virtually everyone considered themselves Christians and around half the population regularly attended church. Now, the answer C, 52%, was actually the number who ticked the box Christian in the 2016 census. So, Al, that's a pretty substantial drop, I suppose, isn't it? And that's what we're... Yeah, within 100 years, that's, yeah. a, that's a massive drop. Yeah, that's, and that's what we'll be talking about um, today. Anyway, question two. Which of one of these songs was sung at the opening of the first Parliament of Australia in Melbourne in May 1901? Was it A, Waltzing Matilda, B, Click Go the Shears, <laughs> C, the hymn, the old 100th, Psalm 100, or was it D, Love to Have a Beer with Duncan? <laughs> so which of those <laughs> was uh, sung at the opening of the Parliament of Australia in May 1901? I'll go for uh, C, the old 100. And that's a good one to go with because it was correct. Yes, yes. Um, You surprised they didn't sing Waltzing Matilda? Uh, It probably got sung later, I think. (laughs) Right, yeah, Yeah. sure. So, Al, there is no decline in your ability because you passed. You got two of our two smaller questions right. (laughs) Big round of applause for Al Stewart. So, Al, there was a time not so long ago here in Australia where Christian hymns and Christian prayers were an accepted part of parliamentary practice and that a Christian religion was an integral and fundamental part of the social order. So how did it get so influential? Uh, well, I suppose it depends how, if you go back far enough, yeah. uh, if you're looking for the beginning, uh, Constantine, the Roman, Empire, uh, the Roman Emperor, uh, as, he's, as he's facing uh, a great battle to actually become emperor, in about 312, I think it was, has a dream uh, where he sees the Christian symbols or the, the Greek letters chi and rho and, and he's told in his dream, if you, under these symbols, you will conquer. Yeah. So he paints the symbols on, uh, on the shields of his soldiers, wins the, the victory and then decides that he'll become a Christian. Okay. And, and really, you can trace it almost back to there where Constantine links Christianity uh, and the Roman state. I mean, that's, that's the beginning of the, of the influence of Christianity within 
How so can I put it? Sorry, the, the political form, yeah, the political influence. Right. Um, up until then, Christianity had been a a grassroots viral movement. Right. Uh, and things began to change. Well, certainly at, at the, if you like, the political level, it changed definitely with Constantine. Yeah. And in the coming centuries, as as the Roman Empire declined, local bishops became more and more important. Right. So Larry Sidentop, who has written a book, Inventing the Individual, he talks about kind of the, the decline of the Roman Empire saw the, the Christian leaders, the bishops, become more and more important. Mm-hmm. And then... So what, over what, what did this yes. mean then for society? Well, over time, it's interesting to watch, over time the elites, in, particularly in the Western Europe, became Christians, not necessarily, forgive the expression, not necessarily the common people, but more and more of the elites. And then over the centuries, Christianity began, again, more and more, or particularly, if you like, the Roman Catholic Church, gathered more and more political power. Yeah. And the state and the church were more and more entwined. I would say the last few centuries, what's, what we've seen in the Western world is the Christian church be like the chaplain to the state. Mm-hmm. And so it was just assumed that Christianity was the default religion of everyone. Yeah. i tell you where you see it today, and it's an, an anachronism, uh, is Anzac Day service. So if you go to the Veteran Affairs website, there are rules about what has to happen in an Anzac Dawn service. There has to be Christian hymns, Christian Bible readings and Christian prayers. Now, why is that? Well, it's because Anzac Day is a kind of a sacred, uh, a sacred thing. You can't change it. And Anzac Day stayed frozen, whereas the rest of society has moved on over the last 90, 100 years. Yeah. Time warp thing when you yeah. go to a, a dawn service now. Yeah. So it really has changed the assumption that the Christian church is the chaplain to the state I think it's gone. It's it's nostalgia. So that was kind of called was that Christendom or something? Was it the sort of the yeah. age? What, what, what is Christendom? What, is the idea that uh, the state looks that the, the state endorses Christianity as as the default religion of uh, of the nation? Right. Yeah. And so, what what did this uh, Christendom bring then to to the world? Well, in the Western world, I think you can make an argument. There's all sorts of good things that that the Christian worldview bought, like. Um, uh, the rise of science, uh, modern medicine, uh, the, de- the, the value of the individual and so human rights, the rule of law, uh, the growth of capitalism, the creation of wealth. Mm. Uh, all of those things, I, I think you can make a case that certainly Christianity was a vital part of those developments. Yeah. Now, part of the irony is, I think, Christianity carries... Let me say this the right way. Christianity carries almost the seeds of its own demise in that... The Christian worldview brings liberty, prosperity, wealth, etc. And given human nature, the more wealthy we become, the less we feel like we need God. It's kind of an ironic <laughs> spiral almost. Yeah. So things have changed though now in Australia because Christianity in Australia is on the decline. Uh, some would even suggest it's dying. So in 2017, journalist Greg Sheridan wrote a piece in The Australian asking, Is God dead? The number of people attending church regularly has gone from half in our population to single-digit percentages. In the 2016 census, no religion was the largest religious status. Yes. Churches are being closed. So if Christianity is not dead yet in Australia, it seems like it's dying or it's close. So what's changed? Well, if I could say that, I think that's true, that trend in Australia. It is different to trends in the rest of the world. So uh, Philip Jenkins, uh, an American academic, wrote a book, The Next Christendom, and he outlines massive growth in Christianity in, in, as they call it, the global south. So in South America, in Africa and in Asia, the Christian church is just 
booming. Yeah. Now, we don't hear about that in our media cycles because um, if I, I'm from Sydney and I go, dog ride surfboard at Bondi is more newsworthy <laughs> than, you know, poor person becomes Christian in Africa. Sure, uh, yeah. Uh, now, in Australia, Christianity has declined. But, but I put it, I think nominal Christianity has declined. Um, this might be a little controversial. <laughs> but, sure, we ask uh, the bigger questions here. Yeah, okay. I think the number of genuine, hand-on-heart, Jesus-loving, Bible-believing, born-again Christians in Australia today, the percentage is about the same as it's always been, a tiny percentage. Yeah, how can you say that? Uh, because I think it's, it's nominal Christianity that has declined. What do you mean by nominal? Okay, nominal Christianity being those who just turned up because it was what you did. Right. So my grandparents' generation... Um, my dad's parents were good Presbyterians. As far as I, as far as I know, they went to church because it was the right thing to do, and and it was a social uh, focus of the um, uh, of the community. And so you you turned up and saw everyone, and that's fine. But for many many of those people, there was no real spiritual involvement, no real traction in their life. Yeah, you're a good moral person because you went to church. Yeah, went to church, but it's not. Uh, it's not the actual spiritual, relational, born-again thing that Jesus was on about. Right, okay. And so now I can, I can talk to you about the reasons that nominal Christianity has significantly declined since the 1950s, 1960s. In fact, Roy Williams' book, Post God Nation, Roy gives about seven or eight of the reasons why that's happened. Right, yeah. And so, But has that been part of the reasons for this loss of Christendom, I suppose, or the Christian influence in the public sphere? Yeah, I think so. Uh, we've... <laughs> People's adherence, people's nominal adherence to Christianity has has declined. I mean, Roy gives a number of reasons. Uh, one is just plain ignorance of the Christian message. People think they know what Christianity is, and yet it's probably not. I still I still meet intelligent, educated Australian people who've never actually read the words of Jesus. Right. Never actually read the Sermon on the Mount. Almost no one could list the Ten Commandments. Uh, you know. um, another reason that Roy gives is the rise of science or perhaps scientism is the idea that only science can give us reliable information but that's that's a rabbit hole perhaps but surely that would time. mean that people you know trusting you know believing in science now were just less gullible than perhaps before Ooh, I, I think no I think people as one commentator said when people stop believing in God it's not that they believe in nothing they'll tend to believe in anything right although there's also a great emptiness in our culture as I look. Uh, it's interesting to see how Anzac Day has become so much more, uh, inverted commas, spiritual. As a, people are looking to fill an emptiness, a void in our national beliefs, and Anzac Day has become almost our default religion once a year. Mm. Um, so, But, I mean, the biggest single factor that I think that people have, have walked away from churches or, or the need of feeling for God is... How incredibly wealthy we've become. Yeah, why is that a factor? I think our our annual GDP per person is three times what it was in the 1950s, and it's more than seven times what it was a hundred years ago. Mm -hmm. We're just so much wealthier, and well, Jesus Himself says, you know, for the for the rich person, uh, they are so much more likely to actually forget about God because, well, who needs God? We're living the dream now. Mm. So, if we were to rerun the opening of Parliament of Australia now. Do you think that we'd, there'd be still be Christian hymns? Or perhaps somebody would love to have a beer with Duncan might well, be a more sort of inclusive choice, perhaps? <laughs> Maybe, although I, I just find it interesting. In the rules of Parliament, there's still the rule that the Speaker is to pray the Lord's Prayer on behalf of everyone present. 
Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who trespass against us. Mm. So asking God to judge us and forgive us the way we forgive others is an interesting prayer for, um, for our politicians to pray. <laughs> well, for anyone. I'm not having a go at them, but it's a very loaded thing to pray. It, yeah. But it's an anachronism. So how do you react to this change? I mean, you, you used to be a bishop. Uh, yes. Are you, are you sad about the, the lack of or the loss of the Christian influence in the world, the lack of people attending church, the Christian influence? Well, I'm... I am heartbroken that as a nation we're, we're walking away from our heritage. Um, well, surely Oz, we're moving to something better. Uh, well, interesting, Oz Guinness, who's a, a commentator living in the States, says we, we're a cut flower society. So many of the good things that we have actually come from the, the Christian worldview worked out. You know, the value of humanity and, and social security and our, our concern for people's rights, uh, etc. Uh, that, that, that ground or that, if you like, that, the roots of that have been cut. So I think we don't know where we're going now. Mm -hmm. And you can see that in debates. It's like we're, we're playing tennis but there's no baseline. What's right, what's wrong, it's all... Uh, so I'm, and I'm concerned for the spiritual vacuum in Australia. Yeah. You know, the suicide rates and depression and so on. And it's just that it's the, the chickens of meaninglessness coming home to roost. Mm, mm, um, mm. Now... Am I, am I concerned or worried about Christianity, genuine Christianity in Australia? No, uh, because I think, I actually think the decline or the disappearance of Christendom is the severe mercy of God. Well, yeah, there's a, a phrase. I think it's God's kindness. I don't know if I would choose this, but I think it's God's kindness to take it away. Wow. Why is that? Because when you link the Christian church to political power, and you give money and prestige to the Christian church, it makes us fat and lazy and we forget why we're here. Mm. Mm. Right? And that's certainly what happened when Constantine poured imperial money all over the church in the, in the 300s. Uh, Rodney Stark in his book For the Glory of God explains, he says, up until then the Christianity had been a viral grassroots movement. Uh, Christian leadership was costly uh, they weren't well paid, there was persecution, so anyone who went into Christian leadership did it with a, a genuine heart mm. and sacrificially. Well, as soon as Constantine made Christianity the, the imperial religion... It becomes a good career move. Absolutely. The, 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 there was a stampede into the priesthood, he says, mm. <laughs> by, the son, by the sons of the aristocracy. Uh, all of a sudden, Christianity went from um, modest buildings or people's homes into giant temples and... it. it, it it corrupted the church overnight. Mm. Now, not all the church. There were some who, below the radar, stayed faithful. But it, it was a disaster. And I think today, if you link... Anywhere you link power and unlimited money, etc., to Christianity, it's very bad for us. So I think that's part of the reason God's taking it away from us. So we'll actually have to be lean and hungry. Mm. We're asking Al Stewart today's big question of whether the death of Christianity in Australia is a good thing. So, Al, do you think that the Bible expects that Christianity should form an integral and influential part of the social order? I think the, the New Testament expects that Christians will be in a minority yep. uh, in, in a society, uh, but also says that I think the Bible also expects us to cooperate in a, in a positive way, to not be on the back foot all the time, to actually be useful and engaged members of society, um, and that we, we, you know, we have a role to play and that we should be positive yeah but also the, the new testament expects a separation of church and state and combining them 
is a mistake. That is not what Jesus wanted. Church and state should be separate. And there's a story in the Bible that sort of it illustrates some of this uh, from the book of Daniel. Mm-hmm. begins with, in Daniel chapter 1, verse 2, Then the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. So what's going on? In about 605 BC, the Babylonian Empire, which was massive, the biggest empire the world had seen, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, their king, comes and actually conquers Jerusalem. And uh, Israel was, a, or Judah, was a much smaller kingdom. Uh, di- over three successive invasions, he destroys Jerusalem, destroys the temple. and the, the people of God. Yeah, well, yes, the Old Testament people of God. Why? Because as a nation, they'd wandered away from God, done the wrong thing, and God had warned them for about 300 years. Finally, God's patience runs out, sends Nebuchadnezzar, destroys Jerusalem, and Nebuchadnezzar took the cream of the crop, the best people, back to Babylon. Yeah. And, well, it yep. says in um, verse 4 of chapter 1, so they came back, young men yes. without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace, he was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. So someone like yourself, perhaps, Al, is that right? You know, uh, sort of uh, <laughs> aptitude for learning and good looking, etc. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, there was a time, Rob. There was a time. <laughs> right, okay, you can't yeah. beat time and gravity. Right, okay. Um, interesting. This morning, just this morning, uh, I finished a reference for a young lady who'd applied for a Rhodes Scholarship. Mm-hmm. Uh, what so this that, is like the Rhodes Scholarship of the ancient world. Yes, yes. What that points to in Daniel is Nebuchadnezzar is very clever. How do you rule an empire that stretches the known world and includes hundreds of ethnic groups uh, and nations? Well, you pick the best of those, make them fall in love with Babylonian culture, and then you rule the world through them. Now, that's what Cecil Rhodes set up um, with the Rhodes Scholarship. You bring the best and brightest of the empire to Oxford, let them fall in love with the British Empire, and then go home. Yeah. Uh, it still happens. So Neb- uh, Daniel and his three, his three friends get this opportunity to have yeah. this Rhodes Scholarship and then to work for or work closely with the man who ruled the world. Yeah. Now it says so in verse 8 amazing. That, that Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in that way. So why mm. was that? In the story, and I, uh, the offer is that Nebuchadnezzar offers to feed the Rhodes Scholars... Uh, from his own table. So they would get the best of food, the best of wine, the best mm-hmm. of uh, meats, etc. Um, a great honour. But Daniel decides that he won't. Now, there's debate about people say, oh, well, it was because it was offered to idols or whatever. I don't think that's the reason. Because later in chapter 10, Daniel says he is drinking the wine and eating meat, etc. But that's when he's a much older man and has been very successful. I think the reason is it's his way of drawing a line and saying, I'm not for sale. And the way the Bible writers thought, if you eat with someone, it's accepting them as a great as, as friendship. And their culture, etc., and everything it stands for. Yes, exactly. And so Daniel says, look, I'll work with you, I'll study with you, but there's a line and I'm not going to eat with you or be your lapdog that eats at your table. Yeah. And it's interesting, in the story, God actually honours that. So Daniel... He'll take the Babylonian name, he does their study. He's actually incredibly uh, successful as he grows older in the Babylonian um, civil service. Yeah, so he's successful in the, Bab- in the Babylonian Absolutely. Scholarship. In their world, in their world, he's uh, a brilliant administrator and he's promoted. Yeah. Well, we wind the clock a bit further forward. Then Daniel's faced with a challenge. Mm-hmm. He's made it to the top of the Babylonian government 
Uh, so that much later in the book of Daniel, in chapter 6, verse 3, we learn that Daniel so distinguished himself among the chief ministers and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So he's done very well, but he's not all popular. So what happens then? Well, he's not popular, partly because he's so successful. It's envy, and I, I, it's easy to, in a political situation, imagine people being envious. Uh, also, he's without any kind of corruption. And so there's a conspiracy by those around him to get rid of him. They can't find anything wrong with him in terms of corruption or malpractice. And so they point to his belief in his God, the God of Israel. The <laughs> yeah, well, they Testament say that finally God. these men said, we'll find, never find any basis for charges mm. against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Yes, yeah, so that's what they target. Yes, that's right. And so then in verse 10, Daniel, knowing full well that this decree had been published, or decree was issued then, that if they worshipped any gods apart from... If anyone prayed to anyone other than the king for a month, they were to be thrown into the lion's den, which yeah. appealed to King Darius's um, vanity, and uh, later he regrets that, but he's basically set up by some very clever yeah. political moves. So then Daniel goes up to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees, prayed giving thanks to his God just as he'd done before. So why didn't he just shut the door? Well, if you read the, reading the text, he, he does shut the door, but he leaves his windows open. And then those who come to catch him, catch him in a deliberate time. I think the way that it reads, Daniel doesn't deliberately go out into the public square and flaunt his disobedience, but he will not change the routine that he's had for all of those years. Mm. Uh, he serves God first and then he'll serve the king. And that, so he, has a, he reports to a higher power, if mm. you like. Mm. So he's not, still not for sale, though, even though he's been successful. Still not for sale. And you see yeah. in Daniel, chapter 1 is about seduction. Chapter 6 is about intimidation. Mm. But it's because he, if you like, it's because his citizenship's in another world, you could say almost, yeah. uh, that um, he's able to not be seduced and not be intimidated and still be a positive force in, the, in their society. So he's caught... He's caught. And then he's... He's caught. He's thrown into the lion's den. Yeah. And uh, now it's interesting. It's, Daniel's not a promise that God will rescue uh, believers from persecution. Most, mostly the lions eat people. Right. But Daniel's showing that if God chooses, he's able to rescue. And God does choose to rescue this man. Right. Uh, yeah. Who is a witness to the power of the God of Israel. And this has a profound effect on Darius the next morning. Yeah, the, yeah. The king. So, because Daniel was saved from this, the lion. So, how could he stand firm then amidst this challenge? Well, I think, he, as I say, he reported to a higher power. His citizenship was, I guess you could say, in, in another world. And once you believe that, it means you can hold the things of our world lightly, I suppose. That's mm. the way. That he, mm. had a, he had a real faith in that, uh, he did, I think he didn't know whether he'd be eaten or not. But he decided he would actually stay loyal to his God who had looked after him for those 80 or so years. Mm. Well, this idea is picked up in the New Testament in the book of Philippians where the Apostle Paul writes, But our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's a similar idea to what's been expressed in the, the book of Daniel. Yeah. Uh, interesting. In Philippi, where this church is that Paul writes to, was a, a city where a whole lot of... Um, former Roman soldiers had been settled and so Roman citizenship was a big deal then and Paul's saying actually we have another if you're a Christian believer we have another citizenship uh, we look to relationship with God and the new creation and that's that's the number one priority 
And once you understand that, you can hold the things of our world a little more lightly. So how does then Daniel's story and this reflection from the book of Philippians uh, relate to the loss of Christian influence or the, the death of Christianity in Australia today? Uh, I think Daniel points to the fact that you can live in a, a big, powerful world that are, that's not believers... Okay. The, yeah. the Bible might call it a pagan world. I don't mean to be offensive, but a big <laughs> unbelieving world. Non-Christian world. Non that's a good way to put it. Non-Christian world and still be uh, positive and, and serve God first. But if you do that, it'll actually make you useful and, uh, in Bible terms, a blessing to people around you. Daniel would have done a power of good in his life in bringing justice and... Uh, consistency and efficiency in every, everything he touched. So how has the story of Daniel and this reflection in Philippians uh, impacted you? I guess it also gives me confidence that I, I do see uh, the, the influence of Christian institutions, etc., declining in Australia, and yet the story of Daniel gives me confidence that, that Jesus' people and Jesus' work in Australia isn't under threat. Mm. And uh, it's interesting, publicly... The, the Christian faith is is taking a beating, but in, I still, in Australia, in Australia, but I still find that individually, people will listen to you, particularly if you live a consistent Christian life. I mean, that's how I became a believer. Through what happened there? Um, I <laughs> I would describe myself as a bad church-going boy. <laughs> my 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 mum dragged me along to church, a little Presbyterian church in the bush where I grew up. Um, couldn't wait to escape. Uh, came to Sydney to uh, to study. And uh, God put me in a residential college beside another young guy who was, who was a Christian. And I was so impressed with the quality of his life over two years as I watched him that when he invited me to come and hear the Bible taught, I thought, you know, you've, you've got something that I really respect and I, I don't have. So I went with him and, and uh, it was over a couple of years of actually understanding the teachings of Jesus that uh, God switched the lights on. Mm, mm. A couple more questions have come in through our mm -hmm. text line. Uh, so... Should we celebrate or mourn the rise in Christianity in Africa, Asia and South America? Oh, I think we should certainly celebrate it, absolutely. And uh, it, it's with great sadness that, that I, you can see the Western world moving away from uh, Christianity, from a knowledge of Jesus and from many of the values that have been so good. Mm. I'm not saying the Western culture is all good, but so many of the good things have come from the Christian worldview. Uh, another one, has Christianity declined also because of immoral behaviour of churches? Oh, yes. So I, I'd mention that. That's part of the damage of the reputation of Christian churches has come from the awful scandal of child sexual abuse and, uh, and, and the cover-ups that have come. And it is awful. If that, I'll keep going on about it, but I think that's, yeah, mm. it's awful. Mm. So, Al... Is the death of Christianity in Australia a good thing? I don't think Christianity is dying. Some institutions might die, but I think the Christian faith will be alive and well till Jesus comes back. Well, let me leave you with the Bible's answer to the big question. Is the death of Christianity a good thing? From Philippians 3.20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Please thank our guests today. Al Stewart. Enjoy bigger questions? You can help us keep asking them for as little as $1 a podcast. Support the show. 
go to patreon.com slash bigger questions.